Good morning. It is good to see you and it is good to be back with you here this morning at Ivy Creek Baptist Church. As many of you know, I was away last week uh, preaching at a revival at a sister church up in Talmo, Georgia. And uh, at, at Talmo Baptist Church there in North Jackson County. And it was truly wonderful to be with them. Uh, but it is also wonderful to be back with you and to be back here uh, in our in among my own church people and among my brothers and sisters in Christ and to be able to worship with you together this morning. And so it's been an exciting time thus far. If you've got your Bibles, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them and turn once again to the Gospel of Mark. And this time we'll be turning to Mark chapter 8. And I know some of you are just thinking, wow, we are just whizzing right through this book. You are just thinking to yourself, how in the world are we going so fast? And I know that that's the conversations because you tell me. And, uh, but, be, you know, you can be encouraged. We're almost halfway through. I mean, we just started in January, and we're almost halfway through. And today we're going to look at, we're going to actually take 21 verses that we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 8. And as I was studying this passage this week and, and kind of just thinking along uh, the lines of what we come across as, as, as we read it and study it, I was reminded of when I was 22 years old. I had just gotten out of the service, and I had moved back to my hometown up in Gainesville, and I got my first job, finally, after getting out of the Navy, and I went to work for a poultry vaccine company, which, by the way, was an industry that I knew nothing about, and I actually went to work in the service department of that poultry vaccine company, building and repairing vaccination machines that operated off of compressed air, which, by the way, I also knew nothing about that either. But I had an ace in the hole. And my ace in the hole was the fact that my best friend from high school worked for that same company in that same service department, and they had told him he was going to be my trainer. And I thought, this is going to be awesome. He's sitting right back there this morning, and he's looking at me right now thinking, why are you talking about me? It was wonderful to think about Todd being in there to be able to train me, and, and, and I was really looking forward to it, connecting, reconnecting with him, starting a new chapter in my life. I'm not sure that he enjoyed that experience nearly as much as I did. You see, he had to teach me a whole new way of talking, a whole new terminology, nomenclature. I had to learn schematics. I had to learn, I had to figure out what parts went where. I needed to figure out how to troubleshoot. And I, I just recall that being a, a really tough assignment that he got uh, because I was not necessarily a fast learner by any stretch of the imagination. We had to go over stuff again and again and again, and I could just see him at times. He would just roll his eyes and kind of sigh and go, no, no, this is where this goes, and this is how this works, and this is what you're supposed to do. And I know it had to become tiresome for him to keep having to train someone that was kind of as, as dumb as I was and, and to try to do that. Here's the long story short. Quite a few years later, the company, that same company actually promote, gave me a position of, in sales. And, uh, and I think Todd said, you were always much better at talking than you were working with your hands. So, you know, I, I thought about that time and, and training just this, this past week because in the passage that we're going to look at this morning in Mark chapter 8, we see Jesus become exasperated with those that he's training. We see him become frustrated, even annoyed with his disciples. And the reason for his frustrations is because they've been with him, they've been traveling with him, they have been 
learning from him. They've been observing the things that he does over and over and over again, listening to him teach. And yet it becomes painfully obvious that they just didn't get it. They just couldn't get their minds wrapped around who Jesus was, what he came to do, and the capabilities that he actually had. They just couldn't get their minds around it. And in verse 21, how the last verse of our text this morning, you get this image in my mind of Jesus standing there looking at the guys with his hands, palms out, going, how is it that you do not understand? Now, maybe you've asked that question of someone before. Maybe you've been in the scenario like my buddy where you've had to train somebody who it was very difficult to train. Maybe you've been on the other side of the coin. Maybe you're the one who's been the more difficult to train. My guess is probably every one of us in this room have probably found ourselves on both sides of that equation at some point in our lives. Perhaps that is why this is such an intriguing passage to me. It's because I can so readily identify with the emotions that are being expressed in it. Jesus, Jesus not only gets frustrated with his disciples in this passage, he also gets fed up with the Pharisees who are dogging his every steps every time he gets in contact with them. In fact, I would say that just in a, in, in a few verses, Mark paints a picture of Jesus in which we see him as annoyed as at any other point in his earthly ministry. Yet we also see Jesus' compassion on full display in this passage. And really, that's how this whole passage starts off there in Mark 8, talking about the compassion of Christ. Let's read it for ourselves. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 21. Hear the word of God this morning. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said to them, also, he set them also before them. And they ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000, and he sent them away, and immediately got into the boat and his disciples, with his disciples, and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting in the boat again, departed to the other side. And now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them on the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why 
do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Have, having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketful of fragments did you take up? They said to him, 12. Also, when I broke the, the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, seven. So he said to them, how is it? How is it that you do not understand? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the truthfulness of your word, the fact that in it we can see so many wonderful pictures of ourselves that draw us to the reality of who we are, but also in it we see the, the marvelous reality of who you are on full display. Father, my prayers this morning is that you would draw us as a people closer to you as a result of the time that we spend together. Let your word be powerful and active in our lives. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Now, as I began reading these verses for you, many of you may have said to yourselves, I think I've heard this somewhere before. I think I've heard this story somewhere before. And, and honestly, I hope that you said that. I hope that as we as I started reading this for you, you thought, this, this sounds awfully familiar because that means that over the last few weeks and months as you've been attending here at Ivy Creek, you've, you've been paying attention. You see, uh, this isn't the first time that we've seen Jesus feed miraculously a very large multitude of people with just a few loaves and just a few fish. In fact, it's not the first time that we've seen Jesus feed a large multitude of people with, with just a few loaves and a few fish. And then see him get into a boat and travel across the sea together. It's not the first time that we've seen Jesus miraculously feed a large number of people with a few loaves and a few fish, get into a boat and travel across the sea, and then get accosted by the Pharisees. It's not the first time that we've seen Jesus feed a miraculously but large group of people with bread and fish, get in a boat, travel across the sea, get accosted by the Pharisees, and then start teaching about bread. We've seen all that happen before. As a matter of fact, if we look at the structure of this passage, it very closely mirrors the structure of how Mark told us things began to happen in Mark chapter 6. In the middle of Mark chapter 6, we find a parallel that goes from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7. Everything that happened that we've already looked at, there's a parallel for it here in Mark chapter 8. And that's really created some trouble for, for scholars throughout the years. Many of them have proposed that Mark must have been mistaken. He must have made some mistakes in how he recorded things. He, he must have conflated some stories or he just sloppily copied down some things that he'd heard and, and didn't get all the details right. And the chief argument that comes against Mark being correct in what he says, against the veracity of his account, is that in the face of this second miracle that we read about here in chapter 8, a feeding that would have occurred less than a year and perhaps only a few months after the, the feeding that we read about over in Mark chapter 6, well, the scholars look at this and go, how in the world could the disciples have been so dull to have asked the question of Jesus that they ask in verse 4? You see, in verse 4, they asked Jesus after all these people are out there, they said, 
how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? Now the scholars read that and they go, surely, surely the disciples would not have forgotten so soon what Jesus had previously done. That is the point, isn't it? That's really the point that's being drawn out of this text for us. The disciples do forget. They are dull. They are slow to catch on to who Jesus is and to what he's able to do. That's something that we see on display for us again and again throughout Mark's gospel. There have been moments of lucidity. There have been moments of understanding that the disciples have displayed. And those moments are typically immediately followed by issues where we find that they didn't seem to know anything about what was going on and about who Jesus was. And so, to, to use as a reason that, that Mark had to make a mistake or that he was confused or that he was a conspirator in some way of fabricating the things that he wrote really fails to take into account how the disciples are portrayed throughout Mark's gospel in the first seven chapters that we've already studied. Now, let me be clear. There is no question that there are tremendous similarities that exist between the feeding of the 5,000 that occurred in Mark chapter 6 and the feeding of the 4,000 that occurs here in chapter 8. I mean, both miracles happened in a remote region. Both miracles in included Jesus multiplying a few loaves and a few fish. Both miracles, Jesus blessed those loaves and blessed those fish and, and multiplied them out and distributed to his disciples who then in turn distributed it to the people who were sitting on the ground. In both cases, the thousands were able to eat until they were full. And in both cases, there were a significant number of leftovers that were picked up and placed into baskets. But I want you to know there are a significant number of differences between the two miracles as well. Enough differences that cause us to recognize that this is not the same miracle told in two different settings. In fact, first of all, notice that the setting of the first feeding was in Jewish territory. It was predominantly Jews who were fed. The 5,000 that were there, where they were in, in the Jewish part, of, in, in the wilderness there uh, on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Here, however, in Mark chapter 8, they're in the region of the Decapolis, more on the southeastern side of the lake. They're in the Gentile region. Secondly, in the first feeding, Mark tells us that it was 5,000 men who were fed. That didn't count the women and the children. And you might remember that when we studied that passage, we said there could have been as many as 15 or 20,000 that Jesus ultimately fed. But in here, in chapter 8, we learn there in verse 9 that those who, eat, who had eaten were about 4,000. This is a larger, a smaller number of people. And it included both men and women. Thirdly, notice that, the, that in the first miracle, Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish, whereas Mark tells us here, he multiplied seven loaves and a few fish. Fourth, the miracle in the first one, Jesus met, his, met all the multitude immediately after he had gotten down out of a boat. And it was later that same night that he performed the miracle and fed everyone. It all happened on the first day. Yet here we notice in the beginning, Jesus tells us in verse 2 that the large crowd that he fed here in chapter 8 had been with him for three days. And fifth and finally... This is a little less clear in the English, but much clearer in the, in the Greek. The remnants from the first miracle were all collected up and put into 12 baskets, which Mark says are coffinos. 
coffinos, or little small handheld baskets, easy enough for everybody to just carry around with them on their arm. Very common in Jewish society. But in Mark chapter 8, it says when all of the leftovers there were collected, they were placed into seven large baskets. And the word there is the word spurus in Greek. And that is a, a, denotes a, a basket that's probably about the size of a, a, of a laundry hamper. It's actually big enough for a person to get inside because that's the same kind of basket that was used to lower Paul over the wall there in Acts chapter 9. And so you have two different kinds of baskets and really a tremendous amount more leftovers taking place here in chapter 8 than probably you had in chapter 6. But friends, if all of those differences between these two miracles are not enough to convince you that they're not the same miracle told in two different ways, but are in actuality two separate feedings that Jesus engaged in in which he, he fed large multitudes, then you're going to have to do a lot of mental hoops and do some arguing with our Lord himself because down in verses 19 and 20 of the passage I read for you, Jesus makes it clear that he performed two different miracles at two different times. He, he, he causes the disciples to recall, look, don't you remember when I fed the 5,000? How many basketfuls did we get back over? And how about when I fed the 4,000? How many basketfuls did you pick back up? You see, Jesus does that and makes sure that his disciples know that each miracle was its own individual event in order to point out his repeated ability to provide and demonstrate just how dull of heart they were. So, as I have taken great pains to show you this morning, what we have here is not a mistake on Mark's part. Nor is it some great conspiracy on the part of, of, of later copyists who have ultimately produced an errant text for us. Rather, what we have is a repetition of events, a, a repeat performance, we might say, that once more draws our attention to who Jesus is and what kind of Messiah Jesus is. And if you've been on this journey with us since January of this year through Mark's Gospel, you know that's two of the main three questions that Mark is pointing us to. He writes his gospel in order to answer the question, who is Jesus, what kind of Messiah is Jesus, and what all does that matter for you and me? And quite frankly, much of what we've learned previously in our first seven chapters of studying Mark's gospel, well, it's not any different than what we're going to learn this morning in chapter 8. That's why I've entitled my sermon the way I have, and you might remember the quote from Yogi Berra that is purported that he said, it's deja vu all over again. When we read a passage like this, sometimes that's exactly the way that it is. Consequently, I don't, I don't propose to you there's going to be any great new takeaways from this text. Nevertheless, it is important that we remind ourselves of what these passages teach us. In fact, the repetition of the cycle of events that we see taking place here in this gospel is an important point that should not go unnoticed. I want to give you just a brief outline that will sort of serve as is how we'll work through our text this morning and you'll see hopefully how this all comes together uh, I, I, what I want you to note is that is that each group of people that Jesus interacted with had a response to him and it's those responses in that group of people that I want to give you as an outline this morning and you can see sort of how this all comes together the first group of people and the first part of this text breaks out this way uh, it, it's the multitude and, and the 4,000 that are there, what we see is that the people, as they reacted with Jesus, were fully satisfied. In their interaction with Jesus, the people were fully satisfied. Verse 8 tells us that the people ate and were filled. 
Literally, it means that they ate until they were satisfied, until, until they couldn't eat anymore. And what's important to note is that their filling, their, their becoming fully satisfied, came as a result of Jesus feeding them out of his compassion for them. Did you notice how it started? Jesus says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from afar. Jesus recognizes this crowd's need. He was moved with compassion toward them. Brothers and sisters, if you want to know what kind of Messiah Jesus is, you have it on full display right there. Jesus is the kind of Messiah who has compassion on people who are helpless and hopeless and in danger. Brothers and sisters, that's exactly how he has treated you and I as well. We cannot do for ourselves. We are in a desperate state. We know that the Bible tells us that all of us are sinners. And then the Bible goes on to tell us that because of our sin, we stand on, in the full wrath of God and that the wages of our sin is death. But Jesus was moved with compassion for this multitude and he's also moved with compassion toward you and me. In fact, the scriptures tell us that Jesus, because of his compassion, was moved to leave the throne room of heaven and come to earth in the form of a bond servant and then ultimately to be stretched out on a Roman cross and died a criminal's death in order to pay the debt for sin that you and I owe. In doing so, he demonstrated his compassion by extending his grace to us. And here's the point that we should not miss. All those who sat down that day on the ground... All of those who sat down and then ate of the bread and the fish that were distributed to them by the disciples that Jesus had broke and blessed says that they were fully satisfied physically. And that's what he promises to do for us spiritually. That's what Jesus says that he will do. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said that all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they shall be filled. They shall be completely filled satisfied. And, and where does that righteousness that satisfies us come from? Well, it comes from Jesus. Jesus himself in John chapter 6 says, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 4, he says, I am the living water. So what we are reminded of here in this miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 is that Jesus is the Messiah who in his compassion provides for those who cannot help themselves. Those who receive his provision are fully satisfied. Now, if only everybody in this passage had responded to Jesus this way, everything would have been wonderful. But the passage continues, and as we noted, Jesus moves across the water. He enters into Jewish territory. And as he does, immediately the Pharisees press in around him. In fact, Mark says they press in on him to dispute with him and to give for them to give them a sign from heaven. That leads me to the second heading that I want you to see. The second point on your outline today. You see, if the people were fully satisfied, notice that the Pharisees were never satisfied. The people were fully satisfied. The Pharisees were never satisfied. They, they sought after a sign from heaven. They disputed with Jesus. In fact, what that proves was is that they were never satisfied with what Jesus had provided. In fact, Mark tells us specifically that they were testing him. It was a diabolical test, actually. It's very similar to what we see 
that, that Satan does with Jesus right at the beginning of his earthly ministry when he's out in the wilderness? Satan said, well, why don't you do this thing? Why don't you do that thing? Why don't you make this happen? And I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. In very similar form, the Pharisees are doing the same thing to Jesus here. They were not... They were not legitimately seeking to understand who Jesus was. They were out there to trap him. Remember that it was after Jesus had healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath day that it was immediately following that miracle that the Pharisees went out and colluded with the Herodians in order to come together that they might kill Jesus. You see, the Pharisees had their sign right in front of them. They had heard of the things that Jesus had done. Many of them were even eyewitnesses to the mighty deeds of Jesus. Yet in previous passages, we know that they blasphemed our Lord by saying that His power came not from God above, not from the work of the Holy Spirit, but rather from Beelzebub, from, from the prince of demons. Friend, I want you to know that's what faith, that's what unbelief does. It hardens one's heart against the Lord Jesus and against the gospel that He came to announce. Unbelief willfully chooses to remain in the dark, and it refuses to receive the good news of God's grace. Jesus knew that. He understood the Pharisees' question. He recognized that what propelled them to argue and dispute with him was not a legitimate understanding of who he was, but actually it was a hardened heart. And Christ became angry. Notice that in verse 12, Mark tells us that he sighed deeply in his spirit. This is the second time that we've seen Jesus sigh. Just a few weeks ago, we saw that he sighed when he came across the man who was both couldn't hear and couldn't speak. He sighed deeply in his anguish and in his grief over the fact that sin had so marred his creation. And so it was a sigh of grief and anguish. But here, the sigh that emits from Jesus is one that communicates to us the fact that he is angered. He is aggravated. He is irritated with what he sees. Jesus' exact response to their question really then is, a, is difficult to translate from the Greek into the English. And yet I think our English translations have really done a good job of helping us understand the meaning behind what Jesus says. He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. Jesus refuses to put on parlor tricks for people who just want to see him do great and wonderful, mighty things. And there's a theological significance to what he says here. It means that if what he has previously done is not sufficient enough in evidence to prove that he is Messiah, then nothing further will be given because nothing further will actually change a heart of willful unbelief. So here's the reminder that this passage gives us. Jesus had come and provided everything necessary for people to place their faith and their total trust in him. But for those who are hard-hearted, and those who were unwilling to believe, nothing would satisfy them. They would remain in their unbelief and in their sins. And friends, I want you to know that's a warning to us. We need to recognize it as such. Many times I have heard people say, well, if God would just do this, or if God would just speak to me in this way, or if God would just make this problem in my life go away, or if he would do something over here in my situation, then I'll believe in him. Friend, I want you to know that the Lord has provided for you everything that is necessary for you to believe in Him. The question simply is, will you? Or will you remain hardened to Him? 
Now, I say that that is a warning because that's exactly how Jesus presented it to his disciples. Jesus says there's not going to be any more signs given. They get back in the boat. They push away. They leave the Pharisees standing there on the shore trying to dispute and trying to argue with him. They get in the, in the boat and they go across and Jesus says to his disciples, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, Leaven is, is yeast. For all of you bakers out there, you know exactly what yeast does, what leaven does. You take a little bit of it and you work it into the lump of dough and immediately what happens when it's baked is that that dough rises. And, and, and leaven, yeast is a good thing. Man, I love yeast rolls. So any of y'all want to make those, you just go ahead and, and you can find me at 2500 Ivy Creek Road most all the time and we'll eat, we'll eat yeast rolls together. Yeast is a good thing. But whenever you come across it in Scripture, notice that when it's used as a metaphor in Scripture, it's typically always used negatively. Leaven is almost always talked about in the negative sense. Why? Because just a little pinch of it winds up working its way throughout the entire lump of dough. And that's really the issue. Jesus is saying, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Well, what was the leaven of the Pharisees? They willfully unbelieve. They, they willfully did not express faith in Jesus. And so what he's saying is, be careful with that. Don't allow that to enter into your life because it will move fast and rapidly and it'll overtake everything. He says, beware of the leaven of Herod. Well, what was Herod? Except one who was hostile to Christ. He was one who was hardened to Christ. We have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become hardened to him. Because a little bit of that leaven will, it will work its way quickly throughout the lump. And so Jesus is very quickly saying, be careful with the leaven of, that, that can cause all kinds of problems. Now, the disciples, they're sitting there in the boat and they're thinking to themselves, what does that mean? All they could think about was the fact that they had only brought one loaf of bread with them on that boat ride. Somebody had dropped the ball. I can just imagine the 12 of them looking at one another going, James, that was your problem. You were supposed to get that. Peter's like, no, it wasn't my turn. It was somebody else's turn. And they start thinking, do you think he brought up this whole issue of yeast because we only have the one piece of bread on the boat? That leads me to the third point that I want you to see this morning. You see, the first point is, is that the people were fully satisfied with Jesus. The Pharisees were never satisfied with Jesus. The third point is this. The disciples, they were oblivious. They were just oblivious. They were preoccupied with what was going on in their hands and on the boat. And they're thinking, hey, do you, do you think he meant the fact that when he was talking about leaven there that he meant that we didn't have much bread on board. It's right here that this passage just sucks me in. This is the part that I've been waiting to get to and I'm almost at the end of the sermon already. This is the part that just, just grabs my attention. It's like Jesus looks at him and says, guys, what's wrong with y'all? What are y'all thinking? I love the way that Kent Hughes describes it in his commentary on this passage. He, he describes effectively what happens from verses 13 through 21 as Jesus taking the dense disciples' noggins and just banging them together. He does it through the questions that he asks. Notice, he says, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Bang. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Bang. Are your hearts hardened? Bang. Having eyes, do you not see? Ears, do you not hear? Bang. Then he says, don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves 
For the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve. And when I, when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls did you pick up? And they answered, seven. Bang, bang, bang. Some of you have probably had conversations with your kids like that. What in the world's going through your head? Is anything going through your head? I think it's important in verse 17, though, to notice this question. Jesus asks, is your heart still hardened? Now, that's not the same question and applied the same way as he would apply it to the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees had a willful unbelief in them. The disciples were not displaying a willful unbelief of who Jesus was. The disciples, however, were just simply not able to understand what it was they were seeing. The Pharisees were asking for more signs. The disciples weren't asking for that. They just simply couldn't understand the signs that were right in front of them. Why do you think that that is? Well, let me quote Kent Hughes once more because I believe he actually zeroes in on the issue. In fact, the issue that he zeroes in on is a very important one, particularly for us who are church-going, Bible-carrying, hymn-singing Christians. Hughes says this. He said the disciples' problem came from familiarity. The repeated exposure to Jesus' teaching when not reflected upon and acted upon, worked a progressive insensitivity and dullness in the disciples' lives. And then he says this. He says, we experience this as well when we fail to think and act upon what God has revealed to us. It is a case of use it or lose it. They were not appropriating what they were seeing and hearing. I often wonder sometimes if that's not case with us notice that the disciples they weren't hardened against Christ they were simply hardened from failing to understand all that they had been given I believe that they had taken time to, to reflect upon and contemplated the spiritual implications of the healing of the deaf man if they had considered the two miracle healing or miraculous feedings that they had experienced out in the desert if, if they had truly thought about the demonic deliverance of the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman and, and really contemplated what all that might have meant, then I believe that they would have advanced far beyond where they were in their spiritual growth. And I can't help but believe that the same would be true for many of us in this room. How often do we run up against a trial in our lives? A difficulty manifests itself. It's a financial, it's a physical, it's a, it's a relational difficulty that we come across and immediately we start wringing our hands and we start wondering and thinking to myself, oh Lord, do you know what I'm going through? Oh Lord, does, he, does, does, does God know what I'm experiencing here? Do, is God aware of my circumstances? And all the while our vision is on the things that are right around us, in our hands, things that we can touch, things that we can measure, things that we can see, things that we can taste. And the whole time, the whole time we're wondering if God knows what we're going through. Perhaps the lesson that we ought to learn from this passage is that we need to stop and do some remembering. We need to take time to regularly stop and recall how the Lord has worked previously, numerous times, repetitively providing for us, meeting our every need, doing for us when we could not do for ourselves. And when we begin to reflect on that, we need to 
not simply think about it from the physical perspective, but we need to remember it from the spiritual perspective, from the spiritual implications that He has done in our lives, how He's demonstrated His grace and mercy to us, how His compassion and care has been given to us, how He has repeatedly proven to us over and over and over again that He is a loving Heavenly Father who loves His children, that He is a good shepherd who always takes care of His sheep. Brothers and sisters, we must not remain oblivious to the works of God in our lives. He graciously repeats His miracles in our lives so that we will remember, so that our hearts will become tender to Him, so that we will grow in our understanding of who He is and what kind of Messiah He is and then what kind of implications that needs to have for our lives. And all of that then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The repeated demonstrations of our Lord's compassion and grace call us away from the dangers of willful disbelief and dullness of heart to a life of faith and understanding that is fully satisfied in Him. So maybe at the outset today you were thinking to yourself, I believe I've heard all this before. Truthfully, you have. If you've been in part of our worship services, you have heard this before because the message of God's compassionate grace is the gospel message that we continue to preach over and over again. It's at the heart of the songs that we sing. It's at the very words of our own testimonies that emit from our lips. This is what Christ has done and this is what he has done for us. So here's the question. Has the grace and compassion of our Lord fully satisfied you? And if not, why not? Have you relinquished your hold on everything else and trusted completely in Him as your Lord and Savior? Have you abandoned the fruitless efforts to try to satisfy yourself with the things of this world? Here's what you need to know. Jesus Christ is the all-sufficient, all-satisfying Savior. Do not continue to put him to the test, requiring some new form of demonstration to prove that he exists and that he is who the scriptures claim him to be. Do not remain hardened to him. And don't remain dull to him either. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to remember. Perhaps, perhaps some of you, like me, needed to have your noggins banged together this morning to remind you of the care and the compassion that Jesus has given to you again and again and again. And if so, then know this, He does that because He loves you. He does that because He wants you to grow in your faith. And friends, I would be remiss this morning if I did not remind you of this. Those same dull disciples that were on that boat, that Jesus banged their heads together to help them to remember were the same disciples that eventually stood on the street corners in Jerusalem and in other major cities in and throughout the Middle East and declared unashamedly and without reserve that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the only salvation, the only hope for the world. And it was because of the movement of the Holy Spirit through their testimony and through the writing of the, the message that we have here that that began to move its way all the way across the continents and ultimately affected lives thousands of years later of whom we are also a part. 
And so this morning, maybe you may feel a little dull to what God has done. Know this. God is gracious. He's compassionate. And He's merciful. And He's calling you to remember so that you can grow. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father,